Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Before I begin the scripture reading this morning, I just want to just thank some people this morning. First of all, Chris and Kathy Scruggs, thank you so much for, for sharing with us your prayer experiences. You know, Chris was a senior in seminary when I started, and he was one of those great influences on me as a young man, and, and I know the importance of prayer in his life and how that has shaped his life. Secondly, can we thank our bell choir and our choir this morning for the music they provide? This is, what a wonderful time. What a wonderful Sunday to be here. Thank you all so much for sharing that with us. And I want to say too, I just want to congratulate and I want to thank Joe Moore, my associate pastor, Joe Moore, because not once has the world's biggest Philadelphia Eagles fan mentioned the Super Bowl this evening. (laughs) I will say, however, I don't think it's actually ordinary time, and we're not supposed to be green today, are we? I think he just snuck in and changed all that. But no, it is, it's exciting. It's fun to be here today and just such a joy to be in the Lord's house here at First Presbyterian Church of San Antonio on this Sunday. So thank you all for being here with us today. You know, tonight we will be watching two of the most talented and well-disciplined teams in the National Football League. They're not only great at scoring points, but they keep their penalties to a minimum. In a football game or any sport, if you break the rules, there are always specific penalties that will be exercised. And as long as you lose the right number of yards or sit sit the right number of minutes in the penalty box, you can come back into the game. And sometimes... We all know that the officials call penalties that we think are unfair toward our team while they seem to miss the obvious sins of the other team. But when this happens, we do know that there is a mechanism for whoever has committed the penalty to pay their dues and get back on the field. But that's when rules are broken on the field. What happens in real life? What happens when rules are broken off the field? Then it gets much more complicated. What happens when a professional athlete is arrested or is involved in an incident of domestic violence or gambling or drug use? Then it's not simply about losing 15 yards for unsportsmanlike conduct. Now a real crime has been committed and other people have been hurt. There are criminal penalties as well. He may be suspended, he may be fined, or he may be banned for life from the game altogether. So in the game, within the game, there's a way to get back on the field. But what about in real life? The question is, is there any way for that player to be forgiven or to be restored? Now last week, we talked about the mercy of Jesus. And remember, Jesus said, be merciful even as your father is merciful. But mercy is hard. Forgiveness is hard. It's hard to do and it's hard to understand. And that's why Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, go and wrestle with what this means. And so today we're gonna continue to learn and wrestle with what this means. 
by considering the relationship and the distinction between mercy and forgiveness. And the story that we're reading today is about mercy and forgiveness, and it comes from the Gospel of Luke in the seventh chapter, beginning in verse 36. And I encourage you not only to read along as I am reading, but also to hold your place or to keep the bulletin open so you can continue to refer back to this passage. Chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked, asked Jesus to come and eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what this, who and what this sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves a little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we know that this is your word, that it is true, and that it is given to us in love. So speak, Lord. Speak your unchanging word amidst the changing words of our generations. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. First, this story is about a sinful woman a prostitute. Luke calls her a woman of the city, which is a polite euphemism for prostitute. Now, who knows how she got into this business, whether she was trafficked or whether she was threatened or whether she was used and abused or whether she was just destitute and trying to feed her family. But what we see, however, is that she is utterly broken. She is desperate and not knowing where else to turn, she comes to this new, powerful, and yet gentle rabbi, throwing herself literally at his feet. 
And she weeps over her sin. She anoints Jesus' feet with an expensive jar of perfume, which may be the most costly thing she owns. But coming into the house, into this hostile, judgmental crowd, she's taking a risk, and she is betting her life 100% on Jesus' mercy. But this story is also about a Pharisee, a, a local Jewish religious leader named Simon. Now here he is having an important meeting at his house. And then in comes this woman, this, this freak, wrecking the decorum and the civility of the moment with this emotional excess, making a scene. And on top of that, she's a prostitute. You, he's contemptuous of the situation. It's awkward. It's embarrassing. And it's happening in his house. He's judgmental about her. But he's also judgmental about Jesus. Now when the Pharisee saw, excuse me, now when the Pharisee who had invited them saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. I mean, he's full of contempt for her while he also discredits and dismisses Jesus, not only as a teacher of the law, but as a prophet sent from God. But then, of course, this story is also about Jesus. And what do we learn about Jesus? Jesus is merciful. Jesus knows her sin. And there's no reason to believe that her sins were not real or that they were not serious. Jesus even acknowledges it. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many. But he also allows her to approach him. And he receives her gifts. He accepts her repentance and sacrifice of praise as authentic. He knows that she's sincere. And the point is that the Son of Man can read Simon's heart. The Son of God can surely not only read his heart, but her heart. And he can read the heart and hear the mutterings of everyone in the room. He knows who's real. He knows who's faking it. And so then Jesus tells a little parable. He says, a creditor freely forgives two debtors of all they owe him. One owes him a little money, like 50 bucks. And one owes him a lot of money, like five years' wages. And Jesus, now in the role of a teacher, of a rabbi, asks, now which one of these will love him more? The lesson is that Simon's contempt demonstrates little respect and, or, or affection for Jesus, and that for all Simon's piety, this woman is closer to God than he is. And the point of the parable that Jesus tells is to call out the difference between the spiritually proud and the truly penitent. Because the spiritually proud person says, I've followed the rules. I've met God's standards and I've acted correctly according to God's expectations. I've adhered to the rules regarding both God and man and therefore I am right with God and I deserve God's favor. On the other hand, the truly penitent person says, I've messed up. I've sinned against God and others. And I don't deserve anything from God. 
As a matter of fact, I'm going to have to throw myself on his grace and his mercy just to survive. The proud person says, look at how well I've done. The penitent person says, Lord, I can't do it on my own. I need you. And the question that Jesus asks is not about who will be forgiven, but about who loves more. Who loves God and who loves people more? Who is more likely to appreciate mercy and forgiveness? Who is more likely to have empathy and extend mercy and forgiveness? Beloved, this is all about the beautiful human quality called empathy. The person who understands how badly he or she needs God's forgiveness for himself or herself, that person is more likely to extend mercy and grace and forgiveness to someone else and is therefore closer to the heart of God. And as we continue to unpack the story itself, we'll see that Jesus not only taught a lesson in this story, he also provoked a controversy. How? Simply by forgiving her. Now, what do I mean? Then Jesus said, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. And then Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Now, I don't think we appreciate this, but this is a really big deal. Not just for her, but for everyone in the house. And we don't get that this is a big deal because too often we don't fully appreciate the culture and the context and the situation in which this takes place. Let's break it down. Here's the issue. In Judaism, forgiving sins was not just something anyone could do. In Judaism, forgiving sins was a process of atonement. It was a ritual that involved sacrifices and liturgy, and it was very specific that each sin had a different requirement, a specific rule of penance or payment. It had to be done in a designated temple, and it requires a duly designated priest to pronounce absolution or forgiveness. But when Jesus assumed authority to forgive her sins, when he claimed authority to forgive sins, in their eyes, he was hijacking the whole process. Jesus not only showed this sinful woman mercy, but when he declared her sins forgiven and claimed authority, he claimed authority over the whole process. You know, that's like me as a pastor saying, I have the authority of the whole legal system. I decide who's innocent and who's guilty. I pronounce justice and satisfaction. I determine what's right and wrong. I am not only the judge and the jury, I am the law. And so to to them, Jesus just forgiving her, just declaring her forgiveness was tantamount to Jesus saying, you know what, we can skip the trial. We can skip the proceedings. We can skip over the requirements and the consequences of the law of Moses Because you have loved me and trusted me and thrown yourself on my mercy, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. How dare he violate the due process of atonement by declaring sins forgiven himself? 
That's what ripped them out of the frame. That's why they, why they gasp out, who is this who claims authority and even forgives sins? Now this story highlights the relationship and the distinction between mercy and forgiveness. If we go back to Jesus' teaching from last week, we'll see that mercy is a posture. It's an attitude of the heart and a disposition toward another person. By comparison, forgiveness is a process. It's a series of actions for reconciliation. It's a mechanism for restoring a relationship. And so this story is about three aspects of mercy and forgiveness. First, it's about attitude. And the question is, where's your heart? Where is your heart? This is your posture. Are we more like Simon with a heart of contempt, or are we more like Jesus with a heart of mercy and forgiveness? Where's your heart? Mercy's about empathy. It's about understanding that there but for the grace of God go I. Am I willing to show the same love and grace that God has given to me? And beloved, there's no authentic forgiveness without mercy because mercy is the key that unlocks one's heart to say, even though I'm hurt, I still care and I still love you. It is mercy that will eventually lead to healing and restoration. It's the heart attitude that drives Jesus' mercy prayer, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So first, it's about attitude. The second, second, though, it's about atonement. What do you have to do to get right, and what do people have to do to get right with you? Atonement, that theological word, is really about restoration. It means to get right with God or to get right with a person. It's about reconciliation and relationship. That being said, atonement is a process. It's a mechanism to get right with God and others. And the question of atonement is, what do you have to do to get right with other people and, or with God, and what do other people have to do to get right with you? Atonement begins with repentance, and it's completed in restoration. But we all know that there's steps in between. What has to happen between repentance for restoration to happen? Well, lots of steps. Lots of different elements come to mind. Could be recognition or restitution, relief, rehabilitation, reckoning, ritual. I don't mean for these all to start with R, they just do. But we need to ask in that process between repentance and restoration, what has to happen? And when another, another question we need to ask, is it going to be vengeful or merciful? Is it about punishment or really about restoration? In the Old Testament, out of his mercy, through the word of the law, God had created a mechanism for atonement that opens the door to forgiveness. 
This process involved sacrifice and rituals, often of blood, time, and the pronouncement of forgiveness and absolution by a priest. But then, out of his mercy, through Jesus, the word made flesh, God created a new mechanism for atonement that opens the door for forgiveness in a new way. Consider this, that Jesus died for every sin that we've ever committed and for every sin that we have ever endured. And his sacrifice completed the process. He is the lamb of the sacrifice. And he is the priest, the high priest, who pronounces our forgiveness, our absolution. His sacrifice completed God's new process. And all that is required of us is repentance. And that's what we see in this story. What we see in this story is that repentance, coming to God for mercy with a broken and loving heart, is the new mechanism for God's forgiveness. And so now, atonement comes not by doing sacrifice and ritual and receiving absolution by a priest, but through having faith in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done for us. And what we see here is that repentance, coming to God with a broken, a contrite, and a loving heart, is the new mechanism for God's forgiveness. We can skip the temple and the sacrifices. We don't need the priests. Your love, your faith, your trust in God, expressed in repentance, has saved you. This is the last plane out, and the door is open, but you have to get on board. Turn to Jesus, love him, bet your life on him, and you are forgiven. Hallelujah. So it's about attitude, it's about the atonement process, but it's also about authority. Who has the authority to forgive sins? And those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Who has the authority to grant forgiveness and absolution? Well, clearly Jesus does, but who else? I think this is what we're supposed to ponder. We know that Jesus forgives sins, but what about us? Do we have the authority to forgive sins? Well, think about this. On the night of his resurrection, Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit. And listen to these words. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What is Jesus saying? That when people repent, we have authority to declare forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ and permission to forgive those who sin against us. Atonement with God, reconciliation and restoration with the Father, forgiveness with God is in the hands of Jesus, and it is complete. But atonement between people, reconciliation, restoration, relationship, that one's on us. Forgiveness is in his hands, and it is in our 
hands. We see that there's a process of atonement and forgiveness with God. And we also see that sin is not without its consequences and God takes our sin so seriously that someone has to pay for it. For it. Someone has to pay for all the pain that we cause each other, for all of the disrespect and contempt, contempt and blasphemy that we've shown toward the living God. Justice must be served. Due process must be followed. But who will pay for it? The answer is Jesus. Because of his great mercy and love for us, Jesus Christ took the grave punishment upon himself so that we could have another chance and know the love of the Father without shame or fear. On the cross, Jesus Christ fully paid for every sin ever committed and every sin ever endured. And all that is required of us is our repentance, coming to God for mercy, not with ritual or sacrifice, but with a broken and a loving heart. And as we get closer to Good Friday and Easter, we're going to be talking a lot more about that. But where does that leave us, beloved? Again, mercy and forgiveness are hard. And this isn't just about God forgiving our sins. We've only scratched the surface on this critical subject at the heart of the gospel. The question for us is, how do we forgive when people fall? and people fail? How do we forgive when those are those we love are abused or injured or broken or humiliated or betrayed? What happens when we're in the judgment seat, when we're in the position of forgiveness? Sin is not without consequences to society, to the injured, to the grieving, but is there still a way, a mechanism for atonement? Is there still a way for forgiveness and restoration? Let me approach it another way. Healing and forgiveness are often entangled. What does it take to start the healing process? When it comes to forgiveness, what has to happen for you? What do you require to forgive people? What steps do people have to take to earn your forgiveness? You know, knowing us better than we know ourselves and how hard forgiveness is, Jesus taught us to pray that God would give us both the desire and the power to forgive people, even, no, especially when it's hard. He said, when you pray, pray, forgive us our sins, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, which is old language for forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We pray for God's forgiveness for us and we also ask him to give us the forgiveness that we just can't seem to muster ourselves. So even though this story is about this woman and about this Pharisee and about Jesus, it's really about us. Can we forgive people for their sins and failures? Is restoration possible with us? Knowing that Christ has the authority to forgive and that he has extended that authority to you, what is your posture? 
Where is your heart? When people fall and when people fail, when they hurt us or the people we love, where is your heart? And what is your process? What do you require to forgive someone? What will it take for you to forgive? Be merciful, for the Lord your God is merciful. Oh, God of mercy, this is one of the hardest things that you give us to wrestle with because we all experience hurt, but we all understand the blessedness of forgiveness. Help us, oh God, to understand what it means and help us to go and learn what it means when you say, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Amen.